The views and opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. For more information on this or other KUCI programs, visit KUCI.org or KUCITalk.org. I find this scientifically fascinating. You're listening to KUCI Irvine. Disengage this computer now. Broadcasting at 88.9 FM. Hello, computer. And on the web at KUCI.org. The most reliable computer ever made. And streaming through iTunes. Don't expect any mercy during the Great Robot Wars. And Peter Radio brought to you by machines. Returning to normal broadcast in 3, 2, 1. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to UCI Conversations, a weekly public affairs program dedicated to exploring everything in the land of blue and gold with interviews of UCI leaders, innovators, and last but not least, Zot, 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 Everyday Anteaters. Hey everybody, this is UCI Conversations and I'm your host Kevin Bossenmeyer. And my guest today is pharmaceutical sciences professor Matab Jafari, who was recently featured on the front page of the Orange County Register newspaper for her health class, Life 101. The class has met with such success at UCI since 2013 that next year in 2021, it will be offered at every UC university virtually. We will definitely get into more details about that and more. Welcome, Professor Jafari. How are you today? Thank you. I'm doing well. Thank you for inviting me. You're very welcome. Please, let's just start from the beginning. Where did you grow up and what did you like to do when you were a kid? I was born in Tehran, and Tehran, Iran, and I spent most of my childhood in Tehran growing up with parents who were very supportive and valued education and equality of sexes. And they also valued living a very purposeful life. My grandparents shared those values too. And I became interested in science at a very early age. Some of my students have heard this story, but I like to brag about my first teaching job, which was when I was in fifth grade. I convinced my science teacher to allow me to be a tutor in her class, and she did. So I used to go to school at seven in the morning, a few mornings per week to tutor my classmates. So I was always interested in um, science, and I also liked the outdoors. So I always loved the nature, and I had the opportunity to actually spend a lot of time in nature during the summers and also weekends. How old were you when you left Iran? I was about 15. We immigrated to France. So I finished high school in France. And right after high school, we immigrated to U.S., to California, to be exact. I didn't speak any French when we immigrated to France. So I had to learn French while I was in high school. And then we came to U.S. and I didn't really speak much English. So I had to learn English while I was in college. Wow. Wow. You know, before we leave just your upbringing, did you leave before the Shah fell or was it afterward? That's a good question, Kevin. And I always try to remember the correct years. I lived in Iran during the revolution and the war, the war that uh, was happening at the time between Iran and Iraq. We left Iran right before the war happened and we went back to Iran because my mother didn't want us to be away from the family and we thought that this war is not gonna last uh, too long and it lasts for years. Mm -hmm. So I lived in Tehran when the city was being bombed almost every night. And my memories of those years are still vivid, you know, hearing the sirens at night, running to the basements, you know, in dark, in darkness, and just hoping that our neighborhood is not the neighborhood that was going to be bombed that night. Wow. 
So when you left there, had the Shah fallen? Yes. So we left the country after the revolutions. I left Iran in 1984. I know the revolution happened in 79, so, or 70. I think it's about 79. 79. Yes. Were you aware of the, the American hostages you know, at the time? That was such a, a huge thing in the United States. You know, every night they would report on that and so forth. Yes, sadly, I, I lived in Tehran during those years. And, uh, and I mean, it, it was tough. It was tough being a child or being a teenager during those years and also living in a city that uh, was in a war, a country that was in a war. Right. So your parents must have been very concerned. Did you always feel like, yeah, as soon as we can, we're going to leave? Or was it a surprise when it became time for you to leave? My parents are very pro-education, so they always wanted to create a better life for their children. That was the main reason that we left, because they wanted us to have the best education possible. Uh, That was one of the reasons. Gotcha. And did you feel like when you went to France, did you think, well, we're going to stay here now for good? Or was it always an interim move? So France was supposed to be a transition. So my father, more specifically, always wanted to move to U.S. because he thought that this is the land of opportunity and in the pursuit of the American dream, we needed to come here. My mother, on the other hand, she was okay either way and she liked the you know, French education system. I don't know if you know that, but Iran's education system is very similar to French education system, mm-hmm. both in elementary and high school and universities. So when I graduated from high school, I actually registered in a school in Paris, in Châtenay Université in Paris and in the pharmacy school. So when I moved to U.S. during that summer, it was the summer of 1987, I came to visit my parents because my parents had already moved here. And the idea was to visit them for that summer and go back and start my education in in Paris in the fall of 1987. And that summer, as you can see, lasted for many years. (laughs) I'm still here. So I never went back. My father convinced me to stay my parents, both of them. They convinced me to stay and, you know, just go to college here, which I did. I I see it on YouTube where you describe in one of your talks about being in a French high school class at first, and you don't speak French, and I think you were told to leave the class because you, you stupid person, you can't speak French, get out of here. And yet you became challenged by that and said, well, I'm going to learn French. And it's obvious that you did. That must have not been exactly uh, to come to the United States and then not be able to speak too much English. Were were you just like, well, yeah, I did it in France so I can do it in the United States? Or uh, was that a sobering question for you? Sobering question, for sure. But that was probably one of the most traumatic experiences that I've had in my education because it it was tough. I mean, here is this uh, teenager in high school in a foreign country. And I really, when I say I didn't speak French, I really did not speak French. I remember I would go to physics and math classes and I kind of knew what was going on because, you know, math is a universal language. Everything is the same. But I really couldn't answer questions or I I would struggle to like ask questions in the, in the classroom. And that teacher, it was my philosophy teacher who kicked me out of her class. And, uh, you know, now in retrospective, uh, retrospectively, she was probably right. I mean, I didn't really speak any French and I'm in a French philosophy class. Right. But when I graduated, I don't think I mentioned that in that TEDx talk, when I received my high school diploma, I actually left a thank you card in her mailbox in my high school because she was one of the reasons that I decided to really work hard and learn French. And I know this sounds funny, but when people ask me what is one of my biggest educational achievements, I always say that it's my high school diploma. Wow. Excellent. And then I came here, as you said, I, I had to learn English. 
Right. Was it here in Southern California that you came or? Yes, the, uh, we moved, um, we, when my parents moved to California, they moved to San Diego. So I went to Mesa College, uh, Community College in San Diego. And um, I remember the very first uh, week that I, I was in Mesa College, I uh, met a friend. Uh, 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 he was from Switzerland and he spoke really good French. So he became like my you know, translator, <laughs> my uh -huh. guide. And um, he, he helped me tremendously when it came to like registering for classes, attending classes. Um, and then I eventually learned the language. I mean, I'm still learning. <laughs> wow. Well, that is a great story. So did you always know it would be PharmD? That would be your, your expertise that you would go into? Yes. And it's so funny that you ask this question because I always tell my students, keep your options open, be open-minded, don't be fixated too early on a field of study because, uh, you know, you never know. You never know where life takes you. But I was really determined to go to pharmacy school because in Iran, community pharmacists really act independently, almost like a primary healthcare provider. So for example, when the flu season would come, we would go to the pharmacy, the community pharmacy to get vaccinated. And pharmacists administering vaccination in, in this country is something that is relatively new. Right. Uh, but in Iran, you know, pharmacists, vac you know, they, they, they could vaccinate you. And I'm talking about in 1980s. Right. Or if I had a sore throat, I would go to our community pharmacy. And I remember our community pharmacist, uh, Dr. Mani, he would do a throat uh, swab. And he would say, and I remember very... Well, the very first time that I had sore throat, it was quite painful. And he put me on antibiotics and um, he would monitor me. And I really admired um, this pharmacist so much, Dr. Mani so much, that I was determined that when I grow up, I want to become exactly like him. So when I was in high school, I had my eye in farm in Farm D, and that's why I registered at uh, Chatney Université in Paris. And then when we came to U.S., I found out that UCSF was the best pharmacy school, and I wanted to go to UCSF, and that's what I did. Excuse me just for a moment, Professor, while I do a guest ID. If you joined us late, you're listening to UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer, and my guest today is UCI Pharmaceutical Sciences Professor Matab Jafari. Her stress management and healthy lifestyle class entitled Life 101 has been taught at UCI since 2013 and will go UC system-wide in January of 2021. Professor, can you please tell us what that class is all about? Sure. The class is, as the name implies, Life 101. It's about life. <laughs> it's about learning skills that help us navigate life and hopefully living healthy and purposeful lives. The main focuses of the class are on stress management and also teaching students how to adopt healthy lifestyle choices. So we talk about stress, we talk about nutrition, exercise, mindfulness. We also talk about the importance of sleep volunteering, the importance of practicing gratitude on a daily basis. And we also have a class on personal finances, because as you know, uh, personal finances is a major source of stress for everyone, not just for college students. So these are the topics that we focus on in this class. Oh, interesting. So do you feel like you know, we've heard a lot about these topics. You know, it seems like it always gets um, talked about. It, 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 do you put a little different spin on it or do you look at it a little differently or do you just incorporate more things? I do notice mindfulness and personal finances to be, particularly mindfulness being a new, a new realization for myself. The quick answer to your question is yes. Because we all read and we all know that good nutrition is good. We need to have good diets. We need to 
exercise, we need to sleep more. But in this course, I try to make the information very practical. In a 15-minute lecture and in the online version of the course that you're referring to, we have for each module, so I divide up the class into 10 modules. And for each module I have, we have three 15-minute videos that students watch and then they answer questions and they have to do some reflective exercises. But I have tried to make the module very practical. For example, for the nutrition module, in 15 minutes, I won't be able to cover every single diet and superfood that we have out there. So I really focus on a couple of really basic topics that students can practice and can relate to. We talk about, for instance, about the harmful effects of sugar, processed sugar, white sugar, and I walk them through what high levels of sugar, for instance, can do to your body. And very briefly, we talked about various types of diets, but I don't really get into details because really my goal is to inspire them and encourage them to adopt healthy lifestyle choices. And I try to simplify it for them. And in the class that will be offered in winter, I had the privilege of having two amazing guest speakers, two colleagues at UCI. Dr. James Hicks gave the presentation on exercise, the importance of exercise for our health, for our physical and mental health. And Dr. Ruth Benka, another colleague of mine who is the chair of psychiatry at UCI, presented a module on sleep, on the importance of sleep. And I try to add a lot of practical approaches when it comes to, for instance, having adopting a good uh, sleep hygiene and things like that. Interesting. You know, can you give us a little detail about sleep? Because you know, I find that when you know when you're trying to achieve things, when when you have deadlines, when you want to excel. You know, whether it's eight hours or how many, you know, much time, I just find that a lot of times sleep just gets shortened because you're working on, you know, something to achieve. And I guess the big question is how do you get to balance it? So, so I have, I have uh, some good news for you here. <laughs> the students who have taken Life 101, I can't tell you how many emails I get after talking about sleep in the class because Dr. Benko presented an amazing lecture on sleep, but then we also had some hands-on and practical experiences when it came to developing a good sleep hygiene. So the good news is that students learn that if they want to perform well and if they want to be successful academically, they need to sleep more. So one of the books that I highly encourage my students to read is the book that was recently published by Matthew Walker, who is the director of the Sleep Center at UC Berkeley. And I refer to a number of researchers, especially for college students that he makes a reference to in his book. And one of these studies is about how we can improve our performance on exams. So it is very simple. You study until like 9 or 10 p.m. You go to bed and during early hours of the morning, usually around 5 a.m. if you go to bed at 10, you start retaining the information that you learn. This is how your brain is going to help you memorize and retain or understand the information. Then you get up at 7 in the morning, go to your class, take the exam, and the chances are you're going to do well. And when I present this, this piece of data in, in the class, I, I know that students are probably not believing me, thinking that, oh, she's just saying that so that we get our eight hours of sleep every night. But that's not true. Some students actually put that in practice. And then they, I get these emails from the students saying that, oh, Dr. Jafari, that really worked. I mean, when I read those emails, those are like the best moments of my life because I see the value of all these little pieces of education and presenting science and evidence to my students and encouraging them to sleep more, to sleep at least seven, eight hours every day. And then we also talk about sleep hygiene, you know, coming up with a schedule 
and what to do one hour before going to bed and what, how to set up the bedroom so that it's, it creates a very good and peaceful environment to sleep. Interesting. Do you find, is there good stress and bad stress? Do you look at that? Oh, yes, absolutely. So a little bit of stress is actually good for us. For instance, if we have no stress, we don't probably even try hard. I mean, I tell the students, and that applies to me too, for instance, when I am getting ready to give a presentation, a little bit of stress is good because it's going to encourage me to review the literature, to update my slides, to, you know, make sure that I will do a good job, or when I'm working on a grant, you know, same, same philosophy. The problem is that when stress becomes a chronic stress at a high level, and that is when we start getting in trouble, because that kind of stress, it increases the production of some of the stress hormones that we really don't want to have too much of in our bodies. And there are a number of studies linking high levels of stress to a variety of diseases from heart disease to mental diseases, and and I can go on and on. But too much stress obviously is not good. And unfortunately, many of our students experience a constant level of stress, which is really not good. It's not good for their academic life or their personal life. Especially at the UC level, that fine line, right, between healthy stress and then having too much stress, right? Because part of, you know, being a high level achiever is that you're going, you know, you, you'd like to get the most healthy stress as possible without going over the line. And that, that's the million dollar question, right? Yes. Yeah. You know, to make it uh, simple for the students, I tell them, don't even worry about having healthy levels of stress <laughs> because, <laughs> because we probably all have it. Let's focus on, you know, reducing stress in general because you, you, you don't want to be in a high stress level because, you know, it, it even impacts your sleep, right? So when we are under a lot of stress, we can't even have good quality sleep. So my advice to the students is to just try to work on your stress and reduce it. Mm. Are there one or two examples that you can give us? Uh, Sure. So Kevin, you mentioned mindfulness. I personally believe that if we practice mindfulness during the day in everything that we do, that can have a tremendous impact on um, reducing our stress. We are so used to multitasking and we are so used to going from one meeting to another meeting that sometimes we We don't even remember when was the last time that we took a deep breath. Mm -hmm. So mindfulness is one of those practices that can definitely help us to manage our stress. And deep breathing is another very simple, very simple exercise that can also help us to reduce our stress. So in Life 101, in actually the mindfulness module, not even the stress management module, we exercise deep breathing. And I, again, I try to make it very simple for the students so I don't follow a very rigid counting and now we are going to count to 10 and then we are going to hold our breath for like four seconds. You know, we don't do that. I just tell them that we do that in the class. So I don't want students to say that, but you did say that in classroom. Yes, I did. But when we practice it, the idea is to have much longer exhales than inhales. So you inhale in and you try to take a deep breath. And then you're taking your deep breath. You try to expand your diaphragm. You try to like expand your lungs and you take the deep breath. Then you hold, I don't know, for maybe two seconds, three seconds. And then you exhale very, very slowly. And you do this at every hour or at least every couple of hours. You will see the difference you will see the difference that this deep breathing exercise can definitely impact your stress level and reduce it. I will say my iPhone now tells me, or maybe it's my iWatch, it tells me to take breaks to breathe. And 
for a while I was in the habit of just going, I don't have time to breathe <laughs> or at least take these deep breaths. But then I thought, well, what if I just, you know, right when I see it or as soon as I can, if I just did take a deep breath. And um, so I've been trying that lately. Good. <laughs> yeah. J just a, one more moment, Professor. Ladies and gentlemen, if you joined us late, you are listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. This is the UCI Conversation Show, and I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer, and my guest today is pharmaceutical sciences professor, Batab Jafari. During this stressful time of the pandemic, her health, nutrition, and lifestyle class entitled Life 101 is now going to be offered system-wide in the UC system to help students not only navigate school physically, but also emotionally. Maybe you could talk about your research Professor, you have a lab, and I know fruit flies, it's, it's interesting how often we'll hear fruit flies for testing and, and research. Can you tell us why a fruit fly is, I, I was fascinated when I was you know, watching YouTube, like, oh, that's why I always hear about fruit flies. So can you please tell us, you know, why do we so often hear about that in research? Fruit fly is an amazing model. It's an amazing model system to be used in biomedical research. And the focus on my lab is on improving health span, not just lifespan. And fruit flies share about 75% of human disease genes. So they share about 75% of our disease genes. That makes them a very powerful model system to study aging and uh, to study lifespan and health span. And we can mimic a number of physiological processes that we have in humans, in flies. I don't know if you know that, Kevin, but I came to fruit fly research only in 2005 when I was recruited to UCI to develop you know, pharmaceutical sciences. But until then, until 2005, I was really a clinical researcher and I was doing mostly drug studies studying various drugs, uh, mostly for cardiovascular diseases. And then I was at Abbott Laboratories in the neuroscience uh, group studying CNS drugs. But when I came back to UCI in 2005, I decided to shift my research to aging. And I was looking for a model system. I knew I can continue studying, doing my work in humans because we live too long. And by the time I would finish my lifespan studies, uh, I would be probably gone myself. <laughs> <laughs> so I, um, I chose fruit flies because I realized that this is a great model system. The genome of fruit flies are very defined. They are a very good physiological model system to study human diseases. And we have a number of transgenic flies that help us to study human diseases. I have worked with transgenic flies, for instance, that have the pathology of, for instance, Huntington disease, which is a neurological disorder. But fruit flies are, are great. I have really enjoyed working with them for the past 15 years. Yeah, interesting. Now, COVID, would that be one disease that doesn't affect fruit flies or, or, or are there some lessons to be learned? It's, it's so funny you ask this question because when the pandemic happened, I was trying to figure out how I can conduct studies and trying to help the research community when it came to COVID-19. I don't really think, I don't really know if fruit flies get COVID. It's not plausible. But there are fruit flies are also a strong model system to study infectious diseases because, again, you can create transgenic flies. One aspect of fruit fly research that can definitely help when it comes to pretty much any type of infections is that flies are a great model system for drug discovery and development because, again, the genome is, is very well defined. You can obviously measure their transcriptome and you can expose them to various drugs and um, pharmaceuticals and see the changes in their transcriptome, in their metabolism, and also proteome. So when it comes to omics studies and really trying to discover where the site of drug action is, fruit fly is a very good model system. And is there, are there, a couple of top diseases that, you know, particularly like fruit flies are just like, oh my, 
they are powerful examples. You know, it's like one for one correlates between humans and fruit flies. It's just like, it's practically the same. Does it doesn't apply like that? Um, it does. I mean, I, the, the, one of the examples that I can share is, is the work that was done in Larry Marsh's lab, I would say probably 10 years ago, and in collaboration with Dr. Leslie Thompson, they use fruit flies to study Huntington disease, and their work was so successful that the molecules that they discovered that impacted the pathology of Huntington disease in, in fruit flies went into a clinical study. And I remember when I started working with fruit flies, my colleagues, I don't want to say they criticized me, but they questioned me, like, why fruit flies? I mean, you were already doing clinical studies and you were working with humans when it came to uh, biomedical research. Why now going back to, <laughs> to such a simple animal, a simple model system? And my answer was the fact that, as I mentioned to you, they're very well defined and they're very easy to work with. I mean, I can do a lifespan study in my lab uh, using the right population and the right type of flies in probably just two months. That is not going to happen if I work with mice or humans. So that's what makes them so powerful. It's also the ease of use. But I can't think of any other diseases except for Huntington disease when it comes to literally going from flies to a clinical study. Can you remind us what is Huntington's disease? Huntington disease is a neurological disorder that luckily doesn't affect too many people in the world. But when it happens, it causes severe weakening of your muscles and it is very debilitating. In terms of research, how do you give it to the fly? Can you just briefly describe to us listeners who have no idea? How do they do that? Sure. So we put any dietary supplement or any pharmaceutical that we want to feed our flies in their food and more specifically in the yeast. So in my lab, the food of the flies is banana-based. So they fruit flies eat in labs, that's pretty much their food. They eat banana and that's what fruit flies do in the nature, right? They eat rotten, they thrive on, on fruits, on rotten fruits that are, you know, uh-huh. uh, left in the nature somewhere. But in the labs, we make them the food, obviously, and it is banana-based. But on the top of the food, we usually put a layer of yeast. They love to eat yeast. And we mix the drug in their yeast paste. So if you ask me why yeast, the answer to your question is yeast to a fruit fly is like dark chocolate to me. I love dark <laughs> chocolate. So if you put anything in dark chocolate, I would eat it for you. And I'm not going to complain about the taste. <laughs> and I think flies have the same kind of feeling when it comes to yeast. They love to eat the yeast paste. So they Inch- would update the drug. Now, is yeast, when they're in the wild, is yeast part of rotting fruit or is that a separate thing? No, it's really not. It's something that we use in labs and huh. yeast provides the protein that the, the flies need to consume because otherwise their banana diet is pretty much just carbohydrates. So the lab flies are obviously very different. I mean, a fruit fly that is in the wild, probably the lifespan is not more than a few days. But oh, we have- Flies um, that that definitely live longer than a few days, sometimes months. Wow, interesting. Can you tell us what transgenic flies are? The transgenic fly is a fly that we have kind of. Uh, I, I'm trying to use like a human term that we have kind of edited the genes or deleted something, and we have made a fly that kind of represents the same pathology that you will see in a human. This is probably the shortest definition of a transgenic fly. And we have been able, this is the beauty of having transgenic flies when it comes to aging, is that we have been able to manipulate some of these genes and make these flies live longer. But of course, you know, manipulation of genes in flies are not going to translate to humans. You can't say that, okay, now we have these flies, for instance, Methuselah flies, and they live for a long time. So let's do the same thing to a human. I mean, it it just doesn't work that way. But by genetic manipulations, we can test 
interventions, we can test pharmaceuticals, and we can also study the mechanism of action of some of the therapeutics that we use in humans or they are in early stage clinical studies. Gotcha. Just one more moment, Professor, while I do this final guest ID. If you're joining us late, you are listening to UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossemeyer, and my guest today is pharmaceutical sciences professor Matab Jafari. The focus of her research is on slowing the aging process and adding healthy years to human life, something that she calls healthspan pharmacology. And she's also the director of the newly launched UCI Center for Healthspan Sciences. Professor, how long has that center been active? So this is a brand new center. I am in the process of developing it. And we were making some progress. And unfortunately, the pandemic happened. And I would say the growth of the center has been quite slow. But the center is going to focus on two things. The first one is education. And the course that we were talking about, Life 101, is part of the center. And it's the focus of this course is obviously youth, youth education. And for now, we are focusing on college students. But the center is also going to offer a course for you know, adults and older adults. And that course is called Healthspan Sciences. And I'm in the process of developing it. So the course has, again, an education component and a research component. And for the research component, we are going to hopefully initiate multi-investigator studies to look at modalities that can improve human health span. But again, the center is at very early stages of its development. Gotcha. Is this center part of your lab or is it completely different? No, the center is actually under our new School of Pharmacy and Pharmaceutical Sciences. But of course, I'm running the center, so there is a dotted line linked <laughs> to my lab and my research. Gotcha. You know, Professor, I also note that you, uh, on uh, more than one occasion, have been awarded the Most Inspiring Professor Award in the Pharmaceutical oh. Sciences Department. Are you aware of being inspiring? Are you surprised when you're awarded that? Can you just tell us a little bit about that? Well, of course, you are always surprised when you receive awards like this. And to me, these awards are very important and valuable because it is the students who nominate you and the the students who award you these awards. I love to teach, so (laughs) probably my students see that. And that was one of the main reasons that I came back to UCI in 2005 I was doing really well research-wise when I was at Abbott Laboratories. I really had no complaints. And when UCI approached me to come back in 2005, I really missed teaching my students and interacting with them in the classroom and in my lab. And that's why I came back. And going back to Life 101, this is one of the reasons that I developed this course, because I felt like this course was needed and our students needed it. And that's why I develop it. But I have to tell you that it's a, it's a very humbling experience when you get such awards because it is from the students. And I'm very grateful for that. Does a story come to mind where a, a student has shared with you your impact? Oh, yes. <laughs> I, can, I can share many stories. One of the beauties of uh, being a professor and being a teacher is that you live through the successes of your students. So every time that one of my students get accepted, for instance, to a good graduate program or finish their education and land a very good job, I live through that. And it makes me deeply, it makes me very, very happy. And I feel very privileged because many of my students stay in touch with me and they send me updates about you know, what is happening in their lives and where they are. And when I get such emails, I live through their happiness too. So it's, it's almost like a very selfish job because I mean, there is no shortage of uh, good news and um, you know, positive news. Mm. Professor, I know you 
work a lot on in, in various research models that, that you study the impact of botanical a extracts and dietary supplements. Is there anything that you've discovered or that's been brought to your attention that maybe people who aren't as dialed in might not know about? So in our lab, and again, we work with fruit flies, we have had um, success stories when it comes to botanical extracts. When I started my uh, lab back in 2005, I really had no bias towards using testing botanicals or pharmaceuticals. So I just started testing process. We develop an algorithm to identify compounds and extracts and, you know, plants, you name it, dietary supplements that would increase lifespan and improve health span. And from all those, you know, test compounds that we tested, now we have over 100. Only five of them uh, completed our algorithm very successfully. And these five were botanical extracts, um, Rhodiola rosea, Rosa damascena, cinnamon, curcumin, which is the main molecule in turmeric, the spice, and also another plant, Angelica kaiskai, that we are still working on, you know, the data. We haven't um, published any paper on Angelica kaiskai yet. But these botanical extracts showed us that they not only improve, increase the lifespan, but they also improve the health span of the flies. The question, the problem when it comes to studying botanical extracts is the complex nature. And I'll give you an example. Rhodiola rosea is a plant extract that we've been working with for 15 years. The plant extract has about 200 molecules. And from these 200 molecules, we really have no idea which one is active, which one is not active, which one is toxic, which one is not. We characterize the you know, the plant extract that we work with because we want to make sure that they have high quality. And then we characterize these plants, refer to the molecules that we test using an HPLC machine to make sure that we have enough of those molecules in this extract, the batch that we are using as uh, putative bioactive molecules. But we really don't know if the activity is because of these molecules. So we have had success stories, but if you ask me which molecule in, in which extract is doing the work, I wouldn't know the answer. What I know and what I sense that is happening is that it is not just one molecule, for instance, in Rhodiola rosea that causes lifespan extension and improving, for instance, locomotion in fruit flies. It is probably a combination of a few molecules that work in synergy to result in the positive outcomes that we see in the lab. Mm. And do you just know that it extends the life of the flies or can you see what it's doing physiologically? Oh, no, we, uh, I'm sorry, Kevin, I should have probably mentioned that. We don't just look at lifespan. We look at the impact of the plant on the health span of mm. the flies. And the way we measure health span in a fruit fly is by looking at uh, the impact of the plant on the reproduction. In female flies, we, the, we call it uh, fecundity. So we look at the impact of the plant on fecundity. We look at its impact on locomotion, on their movement, on their mating behavior, because fruit flies have a very complex mating behavior. And any changes in the neurological system can impair and impact their reproduction. Once we have gone through this, this algorithm, which means that the plant extract increased the lifespan and also improved the health span as measured by these assays that I just mentioned, then we ask ourselves another question. And the question is, what is the mechanism of action? Why is this happening? In the case of rhodiola, I like to say that we really exhausted all the mechanistic pathways for this plant. For instance, we look at its impact on sirtuins. I don't know if you know the um, story about resveratrol and dietary restriction mimetics that can increase lifespan in various model systems, including you know, fruit flies. So we look at the impact of, for instance, rhodiola rosea on this protein, on sirtuins that have homologs in fruit flies. And we didn't, see, we, we didn't see anything, meaning that 
the lifespan extension was independent of uh, sirtuins or dietary restriction pathways. We look at the impact of rhodiolarosia, for instance, on insulin signaling pathways. And I have to tell you that today, after 15 years of working with rhodiolarosia, we still don't know exactly how this plant works. We look at its impact. The very last uh, work that we did was working on the impact of this plant on the microbiome of fruit flies. And that was a work that was initiated by two of my undergrad um, students, Eric and Dara, and they're both into in PhD programs now. And we found out that rhodiola changes the microbiome of um, fruit flies. But is this the reason that rhodiola rosia extends the lifespan of the flies? We really still don't know. And that's what makes science fascinating, right? Because, um, you know, it's just, it, it, is, it is a lot of exploration and it's a lot of questions that you try to answer inch by inch. So it, is, it can be sometimes frustrating considering the funding situation right now, but it is very exciting. Is your lab still active with the COVID shutdowns? Oh, this is a, Kevin, you just asked me probably the most sobering question. Mm. Um, I had to shut down my lab in March um, I took the shelter in place, just like many other colleagues of mine, very seriously. I asked my undergrad students and my graduate student not to come to campus. My lab was pretty much inactive for months. And I recently started working in the lab. And I am collecting preliminary data for an NIH grant that I'm hoping to submit in February 2021. So the lab is active. We have started growing fly populations and starting to work with them. But the pandemic definitely impacted my research in a, in a very um, negative way. I am still very optimistic and I'm sure we will bounce back and hopefully everything will be fine. But I tell you that during the pandemic, during the past few months, every time I go to my lab, I'm pretty much there by myself most of the time. The very first time that I went to my lab, it was um, a week after the shelter in place order and there were no students there. And it was such a it, it was like an experience that I had never experienced. It was very, very sad. And I realized how much I missed interacting with my students and being with them in the lab and, you know, learning from them and teaching them. So I'm really, really looking forward to days that we go back and we can have students in the lab and, you know, do science and laugh and, um, talk and socialize and 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 i'm sure you know people have those days <laughs> yes as you were describing that was it like a ghost town yes yes yeah i'm not a big um i don't i don't take selfies and um videos of myself but i remember the third time that i went to my lab i grabbed my phone mm -hmm. and i took a video and then the last five seconds of the video, you see me in the video with my, you know, mask and goggles and everything. And it, it was unreal. It was almost like a surreal experience because I really enjoy having undergraduate students in my lab because I think as a, as a professor, my job is not just to teach in the classroom or do research. My job is also to mentor, mentor the next generation of scientists. And I miss that. I really mm. miss that. I, I can tell. Professor, as we're wrapping up the interview, I, I have a what I think is an interesting question. I think it'll help with students. Do you feel like you've ever made a million-dollar mistake? Does anything come to mind? Um, to be quite frank, no. No. I yeah. like to look at mistakes as experiences. Mm -hmm. I was recently talking to... To our son, one of our sons, and I was telling him that, you know, I, I decided not to use the, the term trial and error. I'm just going to call it trial and uh, correction. Mm -hmm. So you, we all make mistakes, you know, we are not perfect, but the question and the key is to learn from our mistakes and move on. 
So no, I I I can't think of a million dollars. Well, I can uh, I can think of many mistakes, but I can't think of a million dollar mistake. Well, professor, I think you've just answered it wonderfully. It reminds me of Thomas Edison. I've made a, a trillion mistakes, and I've learned from my mistakes to to go on. That's just part of science and and life. So. Thank exactly. you. Exactly. It is part of science and life. Yes. Professor, thank you so much for being with me and on the show today. It's been a wonderful journey. I wish you all the best with your research and with your new center and look forward to talking with you again, I hope. Thank you so much, Kevin, and thank you again for inviting me. Thank you again to pharmaceutical sciences professor Matab Jafari for sharing all about her new UC system-wide class, Life 101. In these days of COVID-19 and stay-at-home lockdowns, we can all use a class about stress management and adopting healthy lifestyle choices. We also wish her the best of luck with her HealthSpan Pharmacology research and her new UCI Center for HealthSpan Sciences. She's come a heck of a long way from being a teenager in Iran and she continues to inspire. Thank you for your work, Professor Jafari. Now turning the page, coming up next at 5 p.m. is Entrepreneur Nation with Ash Kumra, where every week Ash has a new guest to discuss common business problems and what to do to solve them. Stay tuned. And don't forget, you can also reach me at kboss at kuci.org, and my podcast website can be accessed at www.bossenmeyer.com. You've been listening to UCI Conversations, where every week we explore another corner of the land of blue and gold with interviews of UCI leaders, innovators, and zot, 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 everyday anteaters on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. I'm your host, Kevin Bostenmeyer, encouraging us all to look at mistakes like Professor Jafari as opportunities for growth. And as always, Thank you to piano man extraordinaire Fred Kaplan for my show theme music. His CD is signifying and it's a keeper. Check it out. Have a great rest of the week. Don't forget, be safe, socially distance, and wear that mask. We've got to flatten that curve. Keep those trails happy. So long, everybody.